got another song for you, okay? Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. Okay, that was terrible. Let's try it again. Sing with me. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more. Oh, terrible. Sorry. But I got to tell you, here's my favorite part of it, okay? Oh, woman, oh, woman, don't treat me so mean. You're the meanest old woman that I've ever seen. But I guess if you say so, I better pack my bags and go. That's right. Remember that song? Who remembers that song? Okay. That song came out in the early 60s, and my brother and sister and I loved it because our dad's name was Jack. um, (laughs) Ray Charles, hit the road, Jack. That was terrible singing. Anyway, um, I guess I sang all my load over there, but uh, we are hitting the Easter road during this season. We are learning about salvation, and we're looking at some of these different images of road. And actually, as I thought about that song, Hit the Road, Jack, I thought Jack, in this case, could be our old life. When we come to Christ, we say goodbye to an old life. We say, hit the road, Jack. Uh, hit, hit the road, Jack, that old life oriented to sin, that old life that is oriented to self, that old self that is really ultimately headed towards spiritual death as we cut ourselves off in the influence of Christ. When we become Christians, we turn from sin and self to Christ for salvation. We say goodbye. We say get lost to the old sin nature. We become new creatures in Christ. And so to sin, we say hit the road, hit the road, Jack. This Easter road that we're talking about, perhaps I better explain a little bit if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. We are in the season of Lent, a season of penitence, and a season of awareness of, of our salvation, of what Christ has done to secure our salvation. And so we're, we're looking deeper to get a fuller experience and gratitude for what Christ has done. Our goal during Lent here in our preaching is, first of all, to understand the, the nature of our salvation, understand this gift of grace as it plays out in this season in us and among us. So to understand it, also to grasp some biblical tools, some, some texts to help us understand and explain it, these texts from Romans. And also then, thirdly, to consider our invitation to Easter, our heart for others in the community that may be open to at least an invitation to Easter Sunday, if not to come and get connected with a church. But there's a, something maybe God's already gone ahead and is preparing somebody that you know and, and a simple invitation to church and yet for you to be equipped with the, the knowledge of what Easter is truly about and the love of Christ that comes. And so we're traveling this Easter road. I took a picture of the table. Some of you haven't come up to look at it, but here's our little uh, table of, of, of tiles that are moving along and the little signposts along the way give us these stops through the book of Romans. Some call it the Roman road. We began two weeks ago with Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And last week we stopped at, at Romans 5.8 that says, uh, God shows his love for us in this, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Today we look at six. Next week, uh, Pastor Diana already mentioned um, that you would come with your God's brief version of your God stories of coming to faith because we're in chapter 10 that speaks of if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, we will be saved. And so that's the stop next week. And then in a couple weeks, we'll look at the life transformation that happens in Romans 12. We're calling this the Easter Road. Today we move from spiritual death to real life, and so we zero in then on the, on the next one, on Romans 6.23, that says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We're talking here about old life and new life. We're talking about forever life. We're talking about fulfilling and meaningful life. And so this is what we want to look at today on this Easter road. The Easter road is the road to reconciliation with God and with one another. 
The road is taking us through Paul's letter to the Romans on our way to a deeper understanding and experience of Jesus and his reconciling work of salvation. That's what we're doing in these weeks on the Easter road. But today, our journey moves from facing the frightening, really the frightening consequences of sin to considering the free gift of real life in Jesus Christ. The truth today comes through three different ways that Paul works here. And he says, first of all, he he gives sort of an analogy of what this sin choice is like. Secondly, he sort of gives an apology for using such a strong image as slavery. But we learn from that. And then finally, he offers us a choice. The analogy is, he said, it's it's really sort of like changing masters. We move from uh, having sin be master to righteousness being master over us. And secondly, he says, but I'm, I'm offering you an apology. It's really not like being slaves. It's more that you are set free to grow in Christ now that you follow him. And the third is this choice of choosing the gift of ultimate life. It's our choice. So we begin with that analogy. 623 is our Easter Road verse, but it has deeper meaning when we take it in context. And Paul here is, uh, is, is addressing some possible misunderstandings. He's actually addressing a fear that might be in the, the Roman church at this time that he writes to them. And that is that they might be seeing that grace, the existence of grace and forgiveness, is actually giving a license to sin. Could, could it be that the, every time we sin, then, then grace comes and forgives that sin? So, if we, so it's even asked at other places. So if we sin more, does that mean there'll be more grace? You know, it sounds kind of crazy, right? And Paul says, no, no, not, not, not on this road, no. See, so, so far he's explained that salvation is a gift, that we are declared righteous before God, and, uh, and that our coming to, coming to God and restoring a relationship with God was really impossible under the Old Testament law. No matter how hard we would try, uh, we, the law would not get us there, that it takes only grace. It's, it can only be by God's grace. I used to kid, my last church was named Grace Community Covenant Church. And I said, our name is Grace Community Church, not Law Community Church. It's GCC, not LCC, you know. Amazing law, how can it be that that saved, that earned a place for me? You know, that's not what we sing, is it? It's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Law cannot save us. We can't earn it. It's, this gift is a, it's a free gift. It's unmerited we are forgiven. Grace, grace, grace. Amazing grace, abounding grace. So if we keep sinning, grace keeps flowing? No, not on this Easter road in Romans. Paul says here that, yes, sin is like bondage and grace gives freedom, but not freedom to do whatever we want. It's a new freedom, in a sense, he says, with a new master. Sin was your master then, but now righteousness. You have a new master, but but he's a benevolent, life-giving master. We're not just losing an old master, nor are we entered into a situation where we have two competing masters. Jesus himself says you can only serve one. Some of you remember back when Bob Dylan was a Christian for a while there and he was making, writing songs about it and he sang a song, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. We're not just losing an old master. We are changing masters. It's like, and that's the analogy language here, it's like we change from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. Slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. Now, that is a strong word, slaves. It communicates a a total submission, a total lack of of personal ability to make a difference in one's life. It, It indicates a strong authority over one. It's different than the word for servants. A servant may be living in servitude and work certain shifts and hours, but usually it would be understand that they are their own authority on their time off. How many, 
how many Downton Abbey watchers in the room? Okay, enough of you. The rest of you, you'll just have to catch up and watch them all because it's worth it, all right? Megan and I binged watched everything to catch up with season six. But anyway, in Downton Abbey, there's all these servants there, and, and, and they really are in a sense of servitude. Eh? They really kind of have to bow and, and respond to Mr. Carson and sometimes to benevolent Mrs. Hughes. But even when they get their time off, they are a bit masters of their own time off, even though Carson would like to have a little bit of say even in their time off. Slaves, on the other hand, Slaves, on the other hand, are the exclusive possession of the master. And, of course, when we say slaves in our American context, it brings too quickly to mind the ugly institution and system of slavery in American history. There's varying degrees of what slavery meant in history and even in Bible times. Was it better than American slavery? Was it worse? In each case, though, the person is owned and controlled. And you have to realize when Paul was writing this, and we, we mentioned this early on, that Paul is also talking about reconciliation with one another here. He's writing to the church in Rome that had been a Jewish church. The Jews were kicked out of Rome for a period of time under one Caesar, and the church grew as a Gentile church, and then the, the Jew, the, grew as a Gentile church. The Jews came back, and meanwhile, this church grew in great diversity of Jew, Gentile, rich and poor, slaves and free. So Paul uses this image of slavery, and it not only hits home with us who grapple with this dark place in our own American history, but it also hits home for the people there in the Roman church. Sin is our master. And being sin is being self-centered and self-oriented, and it becomes like a slavery. We get stuck into a God-disobeying life, which more and more controls us apart from Christ. So in Christ, we are forgiven and set free, but we are not given license to do whatever we want, but we are given a new, quote-unquote, master. That is righteousness, says Paul. God's righteousness, the right way of living. Not like the law that controls us, but a righteousness that Christ puts within us by his Spirit. And Paul says, you Christians chose this. In verse 17, he says, thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you have obeyed with all your heart the new teaching God has given you. And so the analogy then is that it's like changing from being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness. But it's interesting as you read this impression, Paul doesn't quite feel right about this analogy. So he secondly kind of almost offers an apology. He offers this apology. You're not really slaves. He's, He's taken with the gravity of that word. You are free to grow. And he says in verse 19, and this is from the New Living Translation, he says, I speak this way using the illustration of slaves and masters because it is easy to understand. Before you let yourselves be slaves of impurity and lawlessness, now you must choose to be slaves of righteousness so that you will become holy. Now, he doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, I apologize. But it seems to be implied. He says, I'm using this illustration because it's it's sort of easy to understand, but I I, I sense a little discomfort with him and using the strength of it. But he says, I really did want to compare the Christian life to slavery in a sense, or the pre-Christian life to slavery. And I even want to compare the life now to one of slavery, but only in that we are free and enslaved to Christ and to the Spirit. 
He, he's a little apologetic about this slavery thing, but he needs to make this simple truth, and yet he needs at the same time to take us down to a, a deeper truth as well. He says the simple truth is it's easy to understand the issue of slavery and master, etc. New International says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, he says. <laughs> I put this in human terms just so you can understand. But the deep truth, he says, is that there's a new way to live. The deep truth is that there's a new way to live. There's a, there's a better motivation. There's a higher motivation of, of pleasing God and living into all that God has for you. Pastor and author Stuart Briscoe puts it this way, your business is now is to do what God desires, not what sin dictates. What God desires, not what God dictates, but what God desires as we live in relationship with him. Slavery to right living is better understood as on this road to Christian growth is, is making a, choose, a choice to grow. We choose the road to growth, or Paul calls it here holiness. Now, holiness might be a little bit of a scary word sometimes, <laughs> you know. How about sanctification? Does that work better? You are on the road to sanctification. You are becoming holy. (laughs) Well, actually you are. (laughs) If you've given your life to Christ, we we are on that road. We aren't instantly holy. We are instantly sanctified. In some ways we are declared that, but it is a process of growing. There's the, the Greek word is hagia, H-A-G-I-A, but it, it, you, see it in, in, you see it with this ending of, it doesn't matter what the ending is, it's osmos, hagiosmos, describes a process, not a completed state. In a sense, when, when Paul uses that word for holiness, this is more important, than, don't worry about the Greek, what it means is it's not just being holy, it's becoming holy. You're, on a proce- you're in a process, and you can make progress on that road. Sin happens, but it's no longer in charge. Sin is not in charge anymore. Christ is in charge through the power of the Spirit. And changes can happen with our life. Sometimes powerfully and and instantly with a single prayer. And sometimes over a long and curving journey. I found stories from two different Christian musicians to illustrate this. The first one is Frances Havergal. Anybody know who Frances Havergal is? She wrote several hymns. Probably the best known ones are Take My Life and Let It Be. And Like a River Glorious, which is one of my favorites. Of Havergal, it says this. As a young woman, she had a very quick temper, the kind that would explode. Afterwards, she would be mortified and confess it to the Lord, but then she would lose her temper again and again. One day after a particularly bad explosion, she threw herself down by her bed and wept. She prayed, Lord, must it always be so? Will I always have this temper to keep me humble before you? While she was on her knees, the Lord injected a verse of Scripture in her mind. It was this. The Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will no more, you will see no more forever. The Egyptians you have seen today, you will see no more forever. God spoke these words to Moses when the Egyptians pursued the Israelites to take them back into bondage. And Francis Havergal related the verse to her temper and the way in which Satan wanted to use it to pull her into bondage or slavery. She saw that God could take her temper away. And so she said, Lord, could it be forever? And it seemed to her that the words came back from the Lord, yes, no more forever. Her sister said that from that day, Frances Havergal never again lost her temper. She believed God and God did a miracle. That's Christian musician number one. Christian musician number two may be a little more familiar. He has one name, Bono. And he says this, your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. 
I've heard of people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addictions after a single prayer, like Francis Havergal, relationships saved where both parties, quote, let go and let God. And then he says, but it was not like that for me. He says, for all of that, I was lost and I am found. It's probably more accurate to say, I was really lost. I'm a little less so at the moment. (laughs) I was really lost. I'm a little less so at the moment. And then a little less and a little less again. To me, that is the spiritual life. The slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual, It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years, though, and it is not over yet. So how many vote for Francis? How many vote for Bono? How many say it's all of the above, right? (laughs) I have a feeling there's more Bono experiences in the room than Francis Havergal experiences. And I don't mean to diminish those. God can change us instantly like that. But for a lot of us... It's a reworking, it's a rebooting at regular intervals. It's reading the small print and going back to the small print that we've read a hundred times before until it finally makes sense. Slowly rebuilding us into a better image. That's really what holiness is and growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Paul is making this apology saying, okay, it's not quite like slavery, but it is a new way to live with, with hope to live meaningfully, to live an increasingly authentic life that lines up with who God's called you to be, who others know you to be. That's a growth into that authenticity that we are one, we live one life inside and out. Whoever we're with is the process we're in and the standard is Christ himself. After the sense of apology, then Paul takes us to, he doesn't call it a choice, but I really call it a choice here, this 623. It's really a choice of choosing the the gift of, of ultimate life. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages, the wages of sin. I'm in the last stages of getting all my tax stuff ready to send to an accountant. And I've got a great guy that does my stuff. And there's still a lot of things I've got to pull together. I have everything done except for, I hate to say this because she's not here, the things I need from Megan. Just a few little things on her expenses and miles. But uh, we're ready to go. I wanted to get it done before vacation, which starts tomorrow. We're not going to hit that. But hey, it's still February, isn't it? In fact, tomorrow we can still say it's still February. Yoo-hoo! Let's hear it for February 29th, right? <laughs> anyway. I was looking at my stuff as I was pulling it together, and you know, line number one on my W-2 and on Megan's W-2 is wages, wages, tips, and salary. Line number seven on our 1040, we don't use the EZ because it's just not that EZ anymore, <laughs> but line number seven is our wages, tips, and salaries. We were paid. It's up to you whether we deserved it or not, but we did earn it, and we got paid. Now, gifts, now that's our wages. Our gifts is a little tricky, depending on what you do for a living. Some of the things that I receive for gifts have to be in that line. Just, it's, a, it's the way it works. A, a cash gift is, is something that goes there. But that's not the kind of gifts I'm thinking of when I think of the gifts that have nothing to do with my 1040. Is the gifts that my children give me at Christmas or on Father's Day. 
Or the things that they didn't give me on my birthday this year. So I said, okay, I'm going to make a deal for you. This is what I want for my birthday from you. I'm coming into the city over the next few weeks and taking you out to lunch. And I'm paying for it. So I'm paying for their gift to me, but I want time with my children. That's a gift. It doesn't show up anywhere on my W-2. It's free and it's life-giving. There's wages and then there's gifts. And in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, it's not one of our stops in the road, but it's in Romans. In Romans 4, 4 and 5, Paul starts to build this analogy of wages and, and, he point, and pointing to choice. He says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but they're an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, here Paul's using the analogy and saying that uh, 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 the works here are the good works, and, and, and they, don't earn us, they don't earn us anything. He said they're not credited to anything. They don't earn us righteousness. But now he's using wages in terms of sin. And with sin, the wages of your sin, oh, there is something that you get paid there, death, spiritual death, separation from God. If, if you choose to move in the direction of sin, you're moving away from God. And the ultimate conclusion and end of that is to be separated from God. And that is spiritual death. Eternal life is not earned. It's not even what's deserved, but it's this free gift of God. It's an incredible, undeserved, free gift of God. So I, I think what Paul's trying to say here and what I'm trying to communicate is Paul's saying, just face the consequences. The ultimate consequences of a life of sin, of moving away from God, is separation from God forever. <laughs> and the consequences of simply receiving a gift is eternal life. I wasn't sure to do it or not, but I, I decided I was going to. I'm going to read from a book I've had for a while. This is safely Randy Alcorn. People know him. He wrote a he's written some nonfiction. The one Heaven is probably his best known nonfiction. But this is a novel, Safely Home, written uh, several years ago. And uh, in it, he traces a, an American man who had had a, a Chinese uh, young man who had been his roommate at school here in the states, and so. Uh, the American man had learned, learned Chinese in the process of his work, and the Chinese man had received his American education and gone back to China. And they strike up a friendship later, and it travels uh, the way, really, of, uh, of, of horrible injustice and persecution of the Chinese Christian. And, uh, and Alcorn has a way of sort of painting these images in heaven of what's going on, too. And, and, it's, and, and it's, it's pretty cheeseless, actually. It's pretty good, actually, what he does with heaven. But he also paints a picture of what happens in hell. And this is of Mao Zedong. Some of you remember Mao and his atheistic stance, and I pick up just partway through a chapter. Some of you, if you haven't read this, may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And in The Great Divorce, Lewis has another image of hell, of, of a bus dropping people out, out in the middle of nowhere to live an existence all by themselves. Because as we move farther away from Christ, as we move farther into sin, we move farther away from other people, right? And so the logical conclusion of that is that we live in eternity without God, without others, and yet aware. It's kind of his point. Let me read from Alcorn. He, this is Mao, had said, I want there to be no God. I want nothing to do with him. And his atheist prayer was answered. The everywhere present God had chosen to withdraw his presence from this single place, turning it into a cosmic desert. 
This was a ghetto of massive proportions, yet so small it could slip through a single crack in the tiles of heaven. It was located in some distant and empty place, never to be feared or even stumbled upon by the citizens of heaven. His life, with all his supposed accomplishments, but was but a, was but a puff of smoke dissipating into nothingness. Stop what you're doing and listen to me. Stop or I will, I will. No power to give meaning to a threat. No reason to be listened to and no one to hear him. Thirst without water to quench it. Hunger without food to satisfy it. Loneliness without company to alleviate it. There was no God here. He'd gotten his wish. On earth, he'd managed to reject God while still enjoying his blessings and provisions. But it was excruciatingly clear now that God was the author of good. Therefore, the absence of God meant the absence of good. He could not have it both ways, not here. No God, no good forever. He had wanted a world where no one else was in charge, where no order was forced upon him, and he had finally gotten it. He had secretly wondered if there was something beyond death, but if he went to hell, he'd fully expected to rule there. Yet here there was no king, for there were no subjects, only one prisoner himself in eternal solitary confinement. He missed the sound of laughter. There was no laughter here, nor could there be, for laughter cannot exist without joy or hope. An awful realization gripped him. There was no history here, no storyline, no opening scene, no developing plot, no climax, no resolution, no character development, no travel, no movement. Only a setting of constant nothingness going nowhere. Excruciating, eternal boredom. Nothing to distract him from the torment of the eternal now. He had charmed his friends and cheated his enemies, but death he could not cheat. Hell he could not charm. This nameless, ever-shriveling man writhed in terror. Faced with his own deeds, punished by them, he was receiving in himself the due penalty for what he had done. He longed for a visit from an emissary. He craved a well-wishing message from a foreign dignitary delivered by a courier, a request for an audience in his illustrious presence, but no. He knew now none would ever come or even want to. He could not return to Beijing and knew Beijing itself would soon be gone. A flower withered in a summer's wind. Perhaps it was gone already. No one to fear him, no one to revere him. No one to hear him, no one to think about him. He who had claimed to be savior was forever without a savior, ignored and insignificant empty and embittered and regretful, without a following, without a heart, without a hope, forever, time without end. We don't really know what it's like, but that's pretty graphic, isn't it? We laugh at silly images of flames and pitchforks. But the picture of eternal boredom is pretty sobering, isn't it? It is the logical consequence of rejecting God, isn't it? And I believe grace abounds. I believe we have no idea what happens at the moment of death. And so I, I condemn no one to hell. <laughs> we make choices, though, don't we? We can choose to reject it and push it behind, or we can choose to continue to move in the direction of this gift of real life. And, and care deeply for those who have not made that choice.
And so this sobering picture, whether it's real or not, obviously not real, it's fiction, but it's a depiction of what could be, needs to motivate us here. As I've been saying each week, we, we need to know and we need to go. We, we, we need to know this path of salvation. We need to know the depth of sin. We need to know the heights of God's love. We need to know the implications of Christ's sacrifice. We need to know this choice of life is a choice we make. And we need to be ready to share that as good news. This isn't very good news, is it? But there's plenty of good news to counter it, right? The gift of free life, of new life, of grace that God has provided for us in and through Jesus Christ. And it gets us on this journey of growing, not to instant perfection. Sometimes a rapid change, sometimes a miraculous release and uh, reconciliation. But for many of us, that slow process that Bono referred to, and yet with great hope and with great life and with no condemnation, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So today becomes a good day to clarify who your master is. Who is my master? And to go back, perhaps, even as you reflect the next Sunday, and Diane is my uh, opportunity to share your story of a choice when you said, yes, Jesus, I give you my heart. But it's that daily or weekly or periodic rebooting, too, of of reconnecting and, 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 and not just going back to a story that may be a few years old or 40 years old, but going back to this week and praying almost a prayer of examine and saying, where, where am I letting you be master today, Lord? And who do we follow? We look at the choices that we've made and we look at the choices that we need to make. But then I want to encourage you also as we come now within weeks of Easter, I know there's some really important choices about what you and your children are going to wear that day. Not. Mm-hmm. I'm not wearing a tie, just so you know, because I don't care. But I care deeply who it is we invite to join us that day. I care deeply that we allow God to speak into our hearts and not be afraid. It's easy to extend an invitation. Of those who need to know the goodness of life, maybe they're people who are followers, maybe they're people who do know Christ but have struggled some and are questioning faith or a lot of the peripheral issues that are bombarding the church and our culture have distracted them from the heart of the gospel. And we're going to talk about the heart of the gospel every Sunday, especially in Lent and especially on Easter. And who might it be that you would invite? good stuff, isn't it? It's actually the only stuff. <laughs> it's the only thing that's true. Only thing that's true. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word, but even bigger than that, we love the truth of the gospel, the good news, the good news of life and of hope, of meaning, of an eternal life with, with purpose and fulfillment. We don't want that life of loneliness and boredom. And Lord, we don't want it for the people that we know and love either. So Lord, impress on our hearts the things that are important as we follow you. Amen.